And today, we're going to wrap up this kind of journey through the first few verses of Mark and look at the temptation of Jesus, uh, which, which uh, sets the stage for his public ministry, right? Jesus goes out into the wilderness, big showdown with Satan, with the devil. Um, we're going to, you know, consider what it, what it means for us as Christians today, what it tells us about the sovereignty of God, the mercy of God, the nature of sin and temptation, the grace and compassion of Christ, uh, and, and the sufficiency of the work of Christ. So we're going to consider just these few short verses from a handful of different uh, angles this morning as we read uh, and, and study them together. So let's read it through uh, in its entirety, and then let's pray, and let's get right to, get right to work. Starting in verse 12, it says, The Spirit immediately drove him, Jesus, out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we, uh, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you for the, the word of God, the very words of the mind of God kind of distilled into uh, a book that we can hold in our hand and, and own a copy of. God, I think we take that for granted sometimes, that the very existence of the Bible is an incredible miracle. The opportunity that we have as a church to gather together and, and read the Bible and listen to the Bible and consider it together is an incredible privilege. We pray that you would uh, help us not to take it for granted. We pray that you would help us to appreciate the mercy of God that we experience every time we sit under your word. And we pray as we do that this morning that you would speak to us and that you would teach us and that you would uh, help us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right. The Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness. Verse 12. This word immediately is worth taking note of. Um, right away, at once, immediately after Jesus' baptism, he immediately goes out into the, uh, the wilderness. The word for immediately is used um, several dozen times uh, in the New Testament, but the vast majority of those all occur in the Gospel of Mark. So he loves this word immediately. He says it a lot. Mark's Gospel is very fast-paced. It's, it's abrupt shifts, this happened, and then this happened, and it's a bunch of little tiny, they're called pericopes, but uh, passages, right? Uh, a bunch of little tiny passages, that, uh, just a sentence or two, right? Mark, Matthew and, Matthew and Luke's um, version of this story is much longer, 10, 15 verses, lots of details. Mark is like, just give me the, give me the, the meat and potatoes, the, the essentials, and let's move on, and that's, that's essential to his gospel, and it's, it's unique um, because of the context that Mark was written in and uh, who he was writing to. All of the different Gospels were written primarily to different audiences, and you can kind of see the flavor and the fingerprints of that writer and that audience in the, the Gospels, right? So, so Matthew, Matthew was one of Jesus' apostles. Matthew and John, of the four God, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew and John were disciples, apostles of Jesus. Um, Mark and Luke were not, but they were 
kind of apostle adjacent. They were, they were close to apostles and got, got the, the testimony from them. But So Matthew's an apostle, and it's written to the, the nation of Israel, written to a Jewish audience. And so Matthew's gospel, um, in fact, you can see this in the, in the genealogies between Matthew and Luke. Matthew traces the genealogy back to uh, Abraham and then stops. Because Matthew's primary concern is to show his audience this Jesus that I am writing to you about is the Jewish Messiah. He is the king of Israel. He is, you know, he, he's writing to a Jewish audience and his main concern is that they grasp that this is the, the son of David, the king of Israel, the, the Jewish Messiah. That's Matthew. Um, Luke and John as well are not written so much to the nation of Israel, but to Greeks, to Gentiles. And so they're, you know, more intellectual, more philosophical. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is John writing to Greek philosophers almost, right? Very kind of rhetorical and, and philosophical, right? Uh, Luke says that, that the, you know, God was sent into the world. He's here to seek and save the lost. He's not stressing that Jesus came to the nation of Israel to, to fulfill the promises that God made to Israel. He's saying Jesus came to seek and save the lost people outside of the, the, the world. So, so Matthew is written primarily to a Jewish audience. Luke and John primarily to a Greek Gentile audience. Mark was written to a Roman audience. And so Romans, you know, the, the Roman Empire conquered the Greek, the Greek Empire was, you know, all of the, you know, the philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, right? These are think they have a thing called the thinker, right? Like they're, these are thinkers. Rome came in and conquered them and was like, what do you think about that? Like we're we're bigger, worse. Rome is all about get it done, man. We're construction workers, we're soldiers, we're CEOs, we're powerful people. We're not interested in sitting around and pontificating. We're, we we want to make it happen. Let's get it done and move on. And so. Uh, Mark is writing to that audience. It's almost, Mark is almost like a a, 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 a a gospel that would be read like on his smoke break by a constructor. Right? Like it's like this is short, sweet. Let me read it for a couple minutes and then let me get back to work. That's kind of the the flavor. It's very fast paced. Immediately after this came this, and here's the you know the, the main point. So that's so Mark is written to Romans, and Mark is immediately Mark is frequently using the word immediately to say this happened and then this happened and then this happened let's go let's move on let's keep it let's keep it going so the spirit immediately drives jesus out into the wilderness which again is not that is a little bit uh counterintuitive to what you might expect to read when you think about jesus and where he's going and who it is right right you would you would expect this to say Satan lured Jesus out into the wilderness, or the the spirit. Right, Jesus accidentally found himself in the wilderness, despite the spirit wanting him to go somewhere else that was more secure and more comfortable and and safer or or better, or, or you know, Jesus. You know, you would expect you wouldn't expect to hear that the Holy Spirit was the one that was leading or even driving Jesus out into the the wilderness. Right, the the if the Holy Spirit is the one that's leading me, and if I'm following him, and if he loves me, if, if he has a wonderful plan for my life, then obviously the Holy Spirit is never going to lead me into somewhere dangerous or difficult or hard like the, the, the wilderness where I'm going to experience temptation and suffering. And that's exactly what, what happens, right? The Holy Spirit is the one who leads Jesus, God the Son, into the wilderness explicitly for, specifically for the purpose of suffering, 
being in danger, being tempted by his greatest adversary, by Satan, the, the devil. The Holy Spirit takes Jesus there. Which, is that something that we are prepared to believe about God and about who he is and about what he does, right? Are we, are we, does your theology have a category for a God who, at his discretion, in accordance with his sovereign will, leads people, drives them into seasons of difficulty, hardship, suffering, and temptation? Is that something that we're prepared to believe? Do we have a category for a God who does that? And how do we handle and how do we process and how do we account for suffering and sin and temptation in our lives in the world? Because we, we all, the, the undeniable reality is that sin exists, suffering exists, temptation exists, hardship exists, and so there's a number of ways that we can then deal with it and account for it in our, in, with our theology, right? Uh, one way is that you just walk away from the faith, right? Right. The, uh, this thing happened to me. I'm observing this thing happen to someone else. It's hard. It's difficult. And so I'm, you know, stop going to church. Stop practicing the spiritual disciplines. Stop reading the Bible. Stop praying. Right. Follow that trajectory for a year or two. Stop believing in God altogether. You no longer identify as a Christian anymore at all. seen that happen with friends of mine in my own life. I've seen people that I walked with God with them as a child or in college. I discipled them or they discipled me who now don't, they, they would, they, if you asked them if they're a Christian, they would answer that question no. Uh, Billy Graham, uh, a buddy of Billy Graham's friend of Billy Graham's and a guy who shared the pulpit with Billy Graham as they were kind of coming up as evangelists together. And a lot of people thought it was like, you know, Jordan or LeBron, right? Like who's going to be the more famous evangelist? And of course it turned out to be Billy Graham. He's the one who's, you know, praying at presidential invocations and invites to the White House and all of these things. But Billy Graham and his friend Charles Templeton were two up-and-coming evangelists. Charles Templeton walked away from the faith. And here's a, here's a quote from him given to a reporter for why he did. The reporter says, Was there one thing in particular that caused you to lose your faith in God? And Charles Templeton says, remember, this is Billy Graham's contemporary, sharing the gospel, preaching at revivals, and, you know, all kinds of crusades. He says, I lost my faith in God because of a photograph in a magazine. It was a picture of a woman in Africa. They were experiencing a devastating drought and she was holding her dead baby in her arms and looking up to heaven with the most forlorn expression. And I looked at it and I thought, is it possible to believe that there's a loving or caring creator when all this woman needed was rain? How could a loving God do this to that woman? Who runs the rain? I don't run the rain. You don't run the rain. 
God does. That's what I thought, right? But when I saw that photograph, I immediately knew that it is not possible for this to happen and for there to be a loving God. There's no way. Who else but a fiend could destroy a baby and virtually kill its mother with agony when all that they needed was rain? That was a climactic moment. And I began to think further about the world being the creation of God. And I thought about plagues sweeping across the planet that kill indiscriminately. It became crystal clear that it is not possible for an intelligent person to believe that there's a deity who loves the people that he created. Then, I, then my mind went to the concept of hell, and I couldn't, I, I, couldn't hold my, I couldn't hold someone's hand to a fire for a moment, not even for an instant. How could a loving God, just because you don't obey him and do what he wants, how could that God torture you forever, not allowing you to die, but, but to continue in pain for eternity? There's no criminal who would do this. No, I surmise there cannot be in our world a loving God. There simply cannot be. So some people look at sin, they look at suffering, they look at temptation, and they, they just say, There's, I can't believe in God. I'm going to walk away from the faith. That settles it. Others say, so I'm, Sure, by all means, the sin and suffering and temptation exist. That's undeniable. I wish they didn't, but they do. But I still believe in God. I'm not going to walk away from the faith. So how do I reconcile the reality of suffering and temptation and sin with my belief in a God that is all-powerful and all-good? Free will, right? It's not that God causes people to suffer. It's people, right? People make bad choices. They do bad things. God doesn't want people to suffer. God doesn't want his people to experience temptation And if God could have his way, they wouldn't. Those things wouldn't exist. But there's something that God desires even more than a world that is free from sin and temptation. And that is for his people to have free will, and to have autonomy, and to be able to do as they please without being coerced. God theoretically could put an end to suffering and temptation, but that would mean that he would have to violate people's free will, and that's something that he is not willing to to do. So that's how they kind of account with and account for and process and come to grips with the reality of sin and suffering and temptation. Right? Right? You might not like sin and temptation, but but God doesn't like it any more than you do, and his hands are tied because the alternative is even worse. It's something that he's not willing to, to do. Of course, the problem with that is you might have solved the problem of like God of being responsible for sin and suffering and temptation, but now you have a bigger problem on your hands, which is that the God that you believe in is no longer sovereign. You've gotten him off of the hook of why temptation exists, but he's, he's, he's now a pseudo-God that, that is weak and impotent, and he is at the mercy of decisions and preferences that, that were made by creatures that he had, had made. You've stripped, God has been stripped of all authority. So we might make ourselves feel better thinking, at least God didn't want it this way, but now we have a God who can't make happen what he wants and desires to happen. But the God of the Bible is a God that is sovereign over all things. He's not, you know, he's not uh, competing with anyone else to, to, you know, see to it that his will Gets a, he's not wringing his hands, wishing that the world were different, you know, wrestling with the reality that there's nothing that he can do about it and regretting 
that it is beyond his ability to fix. That is not the God that we see in, in Scripture. The God that we see in Scripture is the God who is sovereign over all things, including suffering, temptation, sin. He's in chart, right? It's, it's uh, you know, God is not the one who tempts anyone. We can see that uh, very clearly. The, the book of James. But God is sovereign over sin and temptation, right? When circumstances in our lives involve suffering and temptation and sin, God is in control. God is sovereign. God is the one who allowed for it to happen. It is happening in accordance with God's will that is perfect and, and good. The God of the Bible is, is not a God who... Uh, enjoys sin, prescribes sin, condones sin, wants sin, but he's a God who is sovereign over sin and the worst sins imaginable, God is still able to um, redeem. He's still able to use to bring about his perfect sovereign plan. So the Spirit is the one who drives Jesus out into the wilderness. It's not not like the spirit is it's not like satan is leading him and the spirit is objecting or the father is objecting god is the the one who is sovereignly bringing this about right when you when you experience suffering and temptation in your life it's because god allowed it to happen it's because god willed for it to happen it's because god intends you intends for you to experience that suffering and that temptation for your growth, for the overall long-term health of your soul. That's why we experience suffering and, and temptation. The Spirit drives Jesus out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. We've, covered, we've kind of mentioned this a few times the last few weeks, but this number 40 is uh, not an arbitrary number. It's not random. It didn't just kind of happen that way. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness on purpose. Mark recorded that Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness on purpose to kind of reinforce and kind of uh, undergird this, this theological reality that Jesus is the new Israel. Jesus is the true and better Israel. God brought Israel out of Egypt. They crossed through the Red Sea effectively being baptized in it, according to 1 Corinthians 10. Then they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years until they came to the promised land. Jesus comes out of Nazareth. He's baptized in the Jordan River. And then he goes into the wilderness for 40 days. Mark is kind of stressing this parallel on purpose as if to say, Israel, God had a mandate for Israel. God had a calling for Israel. And and Israel kind of had a path that they were walking on and, and they ultimately failed to fulfill right? their, their purpose. The, the, the mandate that God had for them was to receive God's blessing, to, to live in covenant relationship with God, and then to, to mediate that blessing uh, out to the world, to, to broadcast it to the end. Right? You are my beloved son. I want you to experience my blessing, and then I want uh, the entire world to be blessed through you. That was Israel's mandate given to them by God, and they drop the ball, right? We, we spent the better part of this year looking at first and second kings. Story after story, king after king. Israel dropping the ball. 
turning away from God, refusing to worship God, refusing to obey God, worshiping other idols instead of God, idolatry, immorality, violence. And so this mandate that God gave to Israel to receive my blessing and then to be a a venue through which the entire world will be blessed through you as you mediate my blessing out to them, Jesus arrives as if to say, I'm going to pick up that mandate. Like, the the, the promises that God made to Israel and the, the mandate that God had for Israel to the world is going to be fulfilled through Jesus. God's perfect will and perfect plan will be fulfilled through Christ, who is the new Israel, the true and better Israel. And so Jesus is baptized just like Israel was baptized. He spends 40 days in the wilderness just like Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus is tempted by Satan and and succeeds, whereas Israel was tempted by Satan and, and failed. Now, the interesting thing about the first sentence in verse 13 is that it's the flip side, right? Like uh, verse 12, the spirit is the one who drives Jesus out into the wilderness. Verse 13, Satan is the one who is tempting Jesus. So in this kind of meta, macro, overarching sovereignty level, God is the one who wills. God is the one who decrees uh, for things to, to happen. Everything in human history, everything in your life happens in accordance with God's perfect plan and God's perfect will, and yet Satan is the one who tempts, God doesn't tempt anyone, Satan is the one who tempts people when they are lured away by their, by their sinful full nature, to read in the book of James, and so Satan is the one who is actually doing the tempting, we, our sinful nature is the one who is actually committing the sins, and so the question of who is responsible, who's the guilty party when we look at sin and suffering in the world, we look at human beings, and we look at Satan who has rebelled against God. And yet when we ask the question, is God sovereign over? Is he the the Lord over all things, including that which we understand to be bad and difficult and hard? And the answer is yes, God is sovereign over those things. So, Jesus out into the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan. Now, like I said, Matthew and Luke uh, give us a lot more insight and a lot more detail into what actually happens in the wilderness with Jesus and with Satan. Specifics about how Satan tempts Jesus, specifics about how Jesus responds to Satan's temptations. It's in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. And there's a lot there, right? There's a lot about um, how Satan's strategies to tempt Jesus in the wilderness look very similar to how he tempted the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, but specifically how he tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. There's almost a parallel, kind of a mirror image in the, the, the strategies that Satan uses. There's a, there's a mirror image to how John says that temptation works in 1 John chapter 2. Right? We can kind of see Satan using these recurring strategies over and over and over, and we can see them described in the, the New Testament. We can see how Jesus um, quotes Scripture back to Satan after Satan tries to tempt him with these various 
uh, things. And so we can kind of learn a lot about how God intends for us to respond to sin and temptation in our lives and how God intends for us to read and memorize scripture in peacetime so that we'll be prepared to fight against sin in, in wartime. There's a lot that we can discern from Matthew and Luke, and despite the fact that I just talked about it for like 10 minutes, we're not going to talk about that today. So I want to, I want, I'm, I'm, the reason why, like I want to let Mark speak for himself. Mark chose to have this account look like this. He chose to not include more details than he did. And so if you want to dive into the specifics of Matthew and Luke, then let's study that together. Call me, we'll get coffee or, you know, uh, look at the sermon, look at the sermon in, in our archive online. But for today, for this week, we're going to look just at the details that Mark included and the reason that he that he did. So he doesn't tell us a lot about the specific things that happen. He just tells us that Jesus goes into the wilderness and he's tempted by Satan. Which in and of itself is a remarkable thing to consider. Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by, right? Um, it's not that remarkable when you or I experience temptation. It's not that remarkable when you or I experience suffering in our lives because we're created beings. We're dependent. We're vulnerable, right? We owe our existence to someone else outside of ourselves, right? We don't have the ability to actualize our will. We are not entitled to have the life that we desire at all times, right? We cannot kind of will our preferences into existence at any moment. That's true of us. And so if we find ourselves in a situation that we deem less than ideal, then it's like, yeah, duh, right? You would expect that to happen because you're a creature who are, you're kind of walking through life. You're not sovereign over all of life. Jesus was sovereign over all of, of life. Jesus is uh, bigger than Satan. He's stronger than Satan. He's more powerful than Satan. Jesus is not the unwitting, helpless victim who finds himself in a situation that he did not anticipate or a, a situation that he is unable to overcome. Jesus is here in the wilderness with Satan because he chose to be. He went there actively as an act of his volition. It's a decision that he made. If I were omnipotent, I probably would not be found in the desert suffering or being tempted by Satan. Right? The, the creed that we read from earlier in the pastoral prayer says that, that Jesus is of the same essence as the Father. He's co-eternal with the Father. All things were made by Him. Je- Jesus has, has lived for all of eternity within the divine community that is the, the Trinity. He's enjoying this beautiful, uh, others-centered, life-giving relationship community with the Father and the Spirit. Jesus is worshipped by angels. He is literally from eternity past Right? An infinite amount of time, Jesus has been living and enjoying the perfect existence. He's fulfilled. He's happy. He has everything that he could ever want. And he could have, should he have desired to do so, he could have continued in that existence, unchanged, uninterrupted, straight into eternity future. But Jesus 
made the decision to leave all of that, to be born as a baby, to walk, to live a life as a human being, and ultimately to go out into the wilderness and to suffer and to experience temptation by Satan, a being that he created, a being that he was sovereign over, a being that he could snap his fingers and just destroy, wipe off the the face of the, the cosmos should he desire to do so. Jesus went into the wilderness to be tempted. It's a decision that he made to do. The reality of the incarnation, the reality of the earthly life and ministry of Jesus, the reality of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness at the hands of of the devil is a remarkable reality when we consider who Jesus was, the life that he was entitled to, and the experiences that he actively chose to walk through for our sake on our behalf. Jesus was tempted by, by Satan. And here are, you know, because Jesus was tempted by Satan, it's not just remarkable that he decided to, despite the fact that he was an omnipotent, sovereign God. It's, it's, it, it's remarkable because of what was achieved, because of what is now true in our lives and in our relationship with God and with Christ because of Jesus allowing himself to be tempted by Satan in the wilderness, which is that now Jesus is able to sympathize with us, people, human beings who suffer and who experience temptation, right? Jesus can identify with you with us totally and he knows what you're going through he knows what you're experiencing hebrews 2 says for this reason jesus had to be made like humanity fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to god that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted he is now able to help those who are being tempted. So Jesus is in a unique position to help you when you experience temptation because of this incident right here. If Jesus had not gone into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, he would not be able to help you when you are tempted in the same way that he can presently right now. Hebrews 4 says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Had he not gone into the wilderness to be tempted, presumably he would be unable to sympathize with us, people who are tempted. But he did, and so he was, right? We have one who in every respect was tempted just as we are, yet was without sin. So therefore, let us draw near to the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive grace and find help in our time of of need. Friends, when you are in your darkest moments of deepest despair and doubt and pain and suffering, when you are the most vulnerable, when you are more tempted than you feel that you have ever been in your life, when you are being tempted beyond what you think that you are able to bear, Jesus has been there. Jesus knows what that feels like. Jesus has experienced it just like you, and Jesus persevered. He never sinned. So he's with us in our temptation. 
kind of trendy nowadays to, you know, point to your own suffering, victimhood, appeal to it almost like a badge of honor. Everyone's trying to out victim status, everyone else. I experienced this trauma. I'm a member of this group that's been oppressed in this way, so I'm a victim, and that victimhood gives me credibility. It's like a trump card that we can play to. I, I deserve special treatment because I've been through this thing that you haven't been through, and so you're not allowed to, you know, you don't know what it's like. You, don't, you haven't experienced what I've experienced. You haven't suffered like I've suffered. It's a big part of the cultural conversation now. Jesus has experienced what you have experienced. Jesus has suffered like you have suffered, right? If there was a contest to see who would win the most victim status points, Jesus would win it. No one can look at Jesus and say, you don't know what I've been through. You haven't suffered like I've suffered. You haven't experienced what me and my people have experienced. He has. And so when we come to Jesus, we are not coming to a Savior who is unaware. We're not coming to a Savior who resides in an ivory tower or in some golden throne and and hasn't been down here in the gutter with us. Jesus knows. He's been through what we are going through when we suffer and when we are tempted. We can take solace knowing that we are not, we're not alone. We're not in uncharted territory. Jesus is there with us. He has succeeded there already, and he has given us his Holy Spirit to guide us and empower us so that we can persevere just like he did. Jesus was like us. He was fully human in every way, suffering like us. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. He's been tempted like we are, yet he was without sin so that he can be a faithful and merciful high priest and make atonement for our sins so that we can draw near to the throne of grace and find mercy when we need it. This is one of the most remarkable passages in all of Scripture. And when you read the book of Hebrews and kind of remember this passage from Mark right here, it is uh, a profoundly remarkable. Jesus was tempted so that we could be saved, so that we could be reconciled to God. And Jesus was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. So remember how I said that Luke, Matthew and Luke were kind of have a more expansive account of this passage, right? With like all the things that Satan said, all the things that Jesus responded and these kinds of things. Um, Mark leaves a lot of details on the cutting room floor that Matthew and Luke do not. This thing about the wild animals is a, is a strange detail that Mark includes that Matthew and Luke do not. Which is interesting. It's worth considering because there's probably a reason why. When wild animals are mentioned in Scripture, it's not, it's never a good thing, right? You know, we, wild animals today, we're like, oh, like, go to the zoo, see the giraffes, right? Like, uh, go bird watching, go to the circus. It's totally safe. It's controlled. It's a fun environment. Ooh, look at the wild animals, right? 
That is not how Scripture understands wild animals. In the Bible, wild animals are dangerous. They're scary. They'll kill you and eat you. In Genesis, uh, Joseph's brothers, they're jealous of him because of the coat. They throw him into the well, and then they, they go home and, and they take his coat home, and what do they tell their dad? A wild animal ate him. 1 Samuel 17, David and Goliath. When Goliath is taunting the people of Israel and David walks up and he's like, who are you defying the armies of the living God? I'm going to fight you. I'm going to kill you right now, Goliath. Goliath says, who is this kid? Who's this child that comes up to me and wants to, come here, child. I'll kill you and I'll feed your flesh to the birds and to the wild animals. Queen Jezebel in Israel. We just, just saw her story a few months ago. How does she die? Someone pushes her out of a tower. She falls, lands, dies. And then by the time they get outside to, to bury her body, the wild animals have eaten her. What, uh, the story of Daniel. What's the, what's the punishment that they convince the king to give to anyone who prays to anyone except the king? Throw them to the lions, the, the wild animals. Revelation 19 says, when God comes back and he destroys all of the people that have rebelled against him, and they're all killed, and there's a huge pile of dead bodies, it says the birds come and gorge themselves on the flesh of the people that are now... Wild animals are bad in the Bible. They're scary, they're dangerous, they're bad. So when Mark says that Jesus was with the wild animals, he's stressing that Jesus. this is a... This was not a walk in the park. This was, not, this was a dangerous, scary, physically hazardous experience that Jesus walked into. He was subjecting himself to injury and bodily harm. He could have died being eaten by wild animals. Whenever you see wild animals in Scripture, they eat people, except here. Well, I mean, there might be, but yeah, here, Jesus is with the wild animals, this is, a da- this is a dangerous, scary, physically threatening space that he's in. And he didn't even think twice about it. Didn't even think twice. Jesus loves his people that much that he will stop at nothing to purchase their salvation he will walk straight into a, a situation that's dangerous, that he could easily be harmed because he loves his people that much. He was with the wild animals. Here's another interesting thing about wild animals. So we mentioned that Mark was written to a Roman audience. The... the persecution of the early church was kind of at a fever pitch in the Roman Empire right around when Mark's gospel was written, right? A few decades after Jesus's life and ministry and, and death and resurrection. It's at a fever, right? the, the emperor at this time is Nero. That's who's the emperor when Mark is writing his, his gospel. Nero was famous for being one of the most ruthless, bloodthirsty persecutors, particularly of Christians. And what was Nero's favorite way to kill 
Christians. What was one of Nero's favorite ways to kill Christians? Throw them into the arena, and they're eaten by lions. So Mark's writing to a Ro- an audience of Roman Christians. If you're in the first century reading Mark's gospel, hearing Mark's gospel, it is a distinct possibility that that day you're going to be eaten by wild animals. You might get arrested by a Roman guard. You might get hauled off. You might get, you know, told to worship Caesar and say Caesar is Lord. And if you don't, if you say Jesus is Lord instead of Caesar is Lord, they're going to put you in chains. They're going to take you to the Colosseum. They're going to take you to an arena. And you're going to be ripped apart by lions and wild animals that are being intentionally starved so that they will be as ferocious as they possibly could be when they eat you, and there's going to be thousands of people watching and laughing and cheering. That, if you're reading Mark's gospel, that is, you're, you're thinking about that. In the same way that, there's whatever, the same way that we think about, how am I, am I going to pay my bills, or how, like, whatever, right? You're thinking in the first century, I could get eaten by lions. Mark is saying, Jesus knows what you are going through. I get it. I get that following Jesus is costly. I get that you might lose your freedom. I get that you might lose your life. I get that you might be arrested, tortured, killed, eaten by wild animals. And if that happens, if you find yourself among the wild animals fearing for your safety, remember that Jesus was thrown to them as well. He was tempted just as we are. He suffered just like we do. And because of that, he is able to sympathize with us and help us when we are suffering and when we are being tempted. You may be thrown to the wild beasts, but you, even then, you will not be alone. Jesus will be with you. Jesus has been there. Jesus emerged triumphant. So hang in there, trust him, and persevere with him. with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Which makes sense because angels, according to Hebrews 1, are ministering spirits who are sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. So here's a ministering spirit sent to to, to Jesus to minister to him and to serve him. It's a beautiful picture that, right, even in the midst of this suffering and temptation that God willed to happen, that the Spirit drove him out to, even in the midst of all that, the Father has not abandoned the Son. It's a beautiful picture of Jesus emerging victorious as the true and better Adam who resists temptations and attacks from the devil, the true and better Israel who is faithful in the wilderness, and the Father affirms him. The Father sends his ministering spirit to come and, and uh, take care of him and serve him and minister to him. So it's beautiful. It's a, it's a really, this, this last phrase of this last verse is really beautiful, but it's also anticipatory. Uh, where else do you see angels drawing near to Jesus and ministering to him? It's in the Gospel of Luke. 
the night before Jesus is crucified in the Garden of Gethsemane. They've just finished having the Last Supper. They go for Jesus to pray one last time, spend time with his Father. Jesus is deeply distressed. He's troubled. He literally says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Meaning, I don't even know if I'm going to make it to the cross tomorrow on Good Friday. I think I might die right here the night before in the garden. That's how bad the, the trauma is that I am. It's so bad that Jesus is sweating drops of blood from his pores, which is a medical condition that happens in, in moments of extreme stress and anxiety. Jesus asks his friends to pray for him. They fall asleep. He's totally alone. He goes and prays to his father and he says, Father, if you are willing, please take this cup from me. Right? I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to experience the terrible wrath of God. I don't want to absorb the just punishment for the sins of humanity. Please don't make me do it. Please let's find another way. And then he says, yet not my will, but your will be done. Meaning even though I don't want to, I'm going to submit to, I'm going to trust in your perfect, sovereign will and plan and character. And then Luke says, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. So when Jesus is at his weakest, when he's at his most vulnerable, when he's being tempted beyond what he thought that he could bear, in the darkest moments, God sends a ministering spirit to comfort him and strengthen him. It happens here on the outset of his public ministry in the wilderness, and it happens there at the culmination of his public ministry in the the garden. They're almost uh, acting like bookends, almost as if this account here in Mark 1 is, it's, it's saying this isn't the end, right? This is not, the story doesn't stop here with, I mean, because if that, if it stopped there, it would still be, it'd be a pretty good, it'd be a It'd be entertaining, right? Rudy, Rocky, right? Whatever, like the showdown, right? Like, and, G- and Jesus wins. And it's like a cool story. If, the, if this was all that we had about Jesus, it would be a remarkable story. But this story and that detail about the angels is, is, the, the, is God saying through Mark, this isn't the end. This story, this is, it goes on from here. It starts here and then it goes on. It goes, like, Jesus' ministry commences from this point forward and then culminates with him in a garden, praying to his Father, deep distress, ministered to by angels, just like here, which will then give way to arrest, trial, false testimony, right? Being declared guilty by, you know, sinners who themselves are guilty. Jesus is beaten, mocked, tortured, brutalized, hung on a cross, terrible death, public spectacle. And we've got this little subtle pointer here 
in this text at the beginning of Mark's gospel saying that's what is coming. Jesus is not just the man who goes into the wilderness and emerges victorious. Jesus is the man who dies on a Roman cross. The reason why Jesus dies on the cross is not for his sin. We've established that he was sinless. It's for our sin. When Jesus was being beaten, he was being punished for things that we have done. When Jesus was hanging on the cross and the sky goes black in the middle of the day and the wrath of God is poured out on him, that wasn't punishment for things that he has done. That was punishment for things that we have done. Jesus was taking out... Jesus was taking our place. Our sin lands us outside of the, of the covenant, outside of the, the, the place of God's favor and blessing. Our sin lands us in the wilderness, as, as it were. And Jesus was driven out into the wilderness of God's wrath to suffer and die alone so that we could be brought in. Ephesians 2 says, Remember that at one time you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from the citizenship in Israel. And you were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. And you were without hope and without God in the world. But now, because of Christ Jesus, you who were once far away... You have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You were out in the wilderness, but the Holy Spirit led Jesus out into the wilderness to be crushed by the terrible wrath of God so that you could be brought in by the blood of Christ. And that changes everything. All of a sudden, you don't have to be good enough to merit your own salvation. You don't have to run yourself ragged trying to earn God's approval. You don't have to live in fear of God's wrath. Now we trust in Jesus instead of trusting in ourselves. We're no longer prideful because of how good we are. We're no longer despairing because of how bad we are, right? The, the gospel of Jesus, that, that Jesus brings us near because he himself went out into the, the wilderness, changes everything. Right? When we see Jesus tempted in the wilderness, that is a, a small seed that eventually grows into the giant oak tree that is the gospel of Jesus dying for sinners to secure their salvation. When we celebrate Advent, when we celebrate the birth of Jesus, the manger, the shepherds, that's a seed that grows into the oak tree that is the, the, the gospel. That Jesus lived the perfect life that we could never live, died the death that we deserved, and was raised from the dead and gives salvation freely to those who turn from their sin and trust in him. The gospel changes everything and Jesus is inviting us to receive it 
and to, to believe it and to be reconciled to God through it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. We thank you that you walked among us, lived a perfect life of active obedience, persevering even through temptation. We thank you that you emerged victorious as the new Adam, the new Israel. We thank you that you suffered and died in our place, that you were raised from the dead. Lord, we come to you this morning remembering the truth of the gospel and waiting together for that day when we will see you face to face and live in your presence under your rule forever and ever. Amen.